This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Accounting has been described as the language of business. But for as long as debits and credits became popular through the double-entry accounting system of the Middle Ages, accounting has also been used as a tool to hide and obfuscate that language. Forensic accounting is a term well-known in today's business world, but relatively new if we consider its relation to accounting overall. And forensic accounting has become a tool to help cut through the chaff of conflicting financial reports, confusing disclosures, and potential fraud. We're lucky to be joined today with one of the forensic accounting industry's most eminent practitioners. Bruce Dubinsky has been practicing as a fraud investigator and forensic accountant for decades, and is here to share his thoughts on some of the marquee cases of the past 20 years, today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, buddy. You know, this episode, I think, is going to be great. We've gotten in the habit, and I dare say you buried the lead a little bit, but I'll come <laughs> on to that in just a second. You know, we've gotten in this habit usually every January or so of finding opportunities to seek out some guests that can help us find the intersection of things that we usually talk about, you know, securities regulation, enforcement, accounting issues, mm -hmm. and pop culture. We've talked to you know David Miller of Greenberg Traurig about his role as a technical director on the show Billions. We've talked with Pulitzer Prize winning author Jesse Isinger, who consults for the HBO show Succession. And today we've got Bruce Dubinsky, who in addition to being a well-known, much sought after forensic accountant and expert, had a lot to do with the Madoff case and even features in the recent Netflix show, Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street. So Chris, I don't know if, if you have any thoughts. Are we gonna stay totally in the wonky accounting bucket today or can we have a little fun with no, this? No, we're definitely gonna have some fun, Kurt. And I also think it might be because you and I just sit at home during the holiday break and watch pop culture that relates to securities <laughs> issues? I don't know. I don't know why January is always the time we come up with these. I don't know, but I love it. Let's keep it going. All right, Kurt, tell us a little bit about Bruce's background. All right, so Bruce Dubinsky is the owner of Dubinsky Consulting, a business advisory firm based in Florida. Bruce has years of experience in forensic accounting, fraud investigations, and commercial dispute consulting. Today, Bruce's practice includes dispute resolution services for law firms, corporations, governmental agencies, law enforcement bodies, and self-regulatory organizations. Bruce has qualified and testified as an expert witness in SEC and FINRA enforcement actions, as well as cases involving criminal and civil financial fraud, Ponzi schemes, commercial business damages, business valuations, accounting issues, and bankruptcy matters. And before he launched Dubinsky Consulting, Bruce managed the disputes and investigations practice at Duffin Phelps, which is where I believe he met my esteemed co-host, Chris. Bruce has been heavily involved in a number of blockbuster cases, including the Enron scandal, the Lehman Brothers collapse, and the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, which, as I mentioned up top, he's even featured in the new Netflix documentary, Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street, which we are going to talk about a little bit later. Bruce, we're excited to have you. Welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. 
Chris and Kurt, great to be here with you today. Bruce, obviously we can jump into all these cases, but you know, with, with guests like you who have had a, a great career and, and we featured some of them in the past as well, we always love to hear about kind of where it all started, right? And and I, I know, you know, like like Kurt said, you and I worked together for a few years at Duff and Phelps. So I know the story, but I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about how your career, you know, got off the ground, what initially got you interested in accounting, and then, you know, what took you through to to where you sit today. So it's a great, great segue into the beginning. And that is, I never wanted to be an accountant. I started out (laughs) pre-med. I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I got to my first chemistry class up at Rutgers University in New Jersey and couldn't understand a thing they were talking about (laughs) and decided pre-med was not for me. And I was going to go into business. And I turned to my father at that point, who was an aeronautical engineer said, okay, dad, what do you think is the best thing to do in business? And he said, I think being an accountant is is a good profession. You'll never get super wealthy from it, but you'll make a good living and you'll have a lot of respect. And if you get the accounting background, you can go do a lot of things after that. And I took his advice. I went to the University of Maryland at College Park where I got my degree in accounting. And towards the, I guess the third or fourth year when everybody is deciding, what do you want to do when you, you get out? At that time, it was the the big eight accounting Mm -hmm. firms, as they were known at that time. So I'm dating myself a little bit. And everybody was being pushed towards public accounting. And I went through some interviews, some interesting interviews, both with public accounting firms and corporates. And I also interviewed with the FBI. The FBI at that time, so this is the early 80s, mid-80s, I guess. And the FBI was just starting to talk about hiring accountants. They didn't even call them forensic accountants. But they were talking about hiring accountants into the bureau. Had a great interview with the the individual. Now, I had already gotten an offer from public accounting at that time, and I was going to make $18,600 a year as a starting salary as an auditor. Mm -hmm. So I was feeling pretty good about myself. And I turned to the agent and I said, okay, so what's involved in in going to the bureau? And he said, well, a couple of things. You have to make an application to the federal government. And uh, then we go and do a background search. And I paused. I said, okay, what's entailed in a background search? He said, oh, extensive. We'll go back to your friends in you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, and especially college. And by the way, were you in a fraternity? And I said, I was. He said, oh, we'll talk to all your fraternity brothers and just you know, about your character and background. And I paused and I said, okay. And by the way, what's the starting salary? And he said, $12,000 a year. And I said, okay, well, I have an offer for 18.6. And you're offering 12000 Is there any way you can match the offer I'm getting from, you know, private sector? And he said, well, maybe you don't understand. This is the federal government. We don't match <laughs> offers. You take our offer and you come, come work for us. He said, but what I will tell you is you get to carry a gun if you come with us. You go through special agent training. Well, needless to say, I decided I was not heading to the FBI at that point. <laughs> I had student loans to pay off. Really wasn't interested in carrying a gun at that mm-hmm. point in my life and, and went and worked as, as an auditor. So... That's really how I got into accounting. And, you know, 40 years later, looking back, it's been, it's been a great career. It's been a great run for, for me. And I've met a lot of great people along the way and been, been honored to work on some great cases along the way as well. Yeah, it sounds like your dad's advice to you, Bruce, about, uh, you know, having a great career and, and having that respect has, has come true. Also, you probably wouldn't be a good accountant if you took the $12,000 offer instead of the 18.6. But we'll leave that, <laughs> that up for debate. <laughs> That's a good point. 
I mean, I was focusing on the went into class and couldn't understand a thing they said. I feel like that on some episodes of this show. <laughs> I'm hoping I'm hoping this isn't going to be no, one sir. of them. You know, we but we do talk a lot about accountants and and sort of the work that you do on a day-to-day basis. And one of the things that Chris and I have talked a lot about over all of our episodes is the role of accountants as gatekeepers. You know, particularly with respect to folks trying to find their way, you know, into the capital markets and what they're reporting out publicly. I guess I wonder if that has always been the perception or if maybe that's how you've always seen yourself. And if not, how has that maybe changed over time? Well, I think as a gatekeeper role, there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of people take it, I think, a step further and they, they think auditors are the, kind of the financial police of the financial world. Mm-hmm. And once you work with audits and, and understand what's involved in a regular financial statement audit and, and the shortcomings of those, you understand that that auditors or accountants are really not the, the end-all gatekeeper. But it's an important role because when you're looking at investing in companies or be, becoming involved in whether it's private equity and investing or through the public markets, having faith and confidence in the numbers that are being reported are, are critical. I mean, at the end of the day, people invest to make money. They don't invest on what the company did yesterday. They're investing and and getting involved based on what they think the future will be. And to predict the future, they have to look at historical numbers. And if those historical numbers have been tweaked or or intentionally mismanaged, there's a lot of problems with that. How do you predict into the future really what's going to happen if, for instance, software sales are loaded right before December and a lot of sales are booked before December when they're really not sales and it distorts that year, and that company then is being sold the next year, how do you project what the subsequent year sales are really going to be? So I think it's an important role. I think it's becoming more and more important. As financial transactions become more complex in today's world, it's more important that accountants understand the entire business working of, of an organization. When I started in accounting, it was debits and credits. And we had, really, we didn't have computers. We had ledger paper. And that's how we did our journal entries and balanced a set of books. Obviously, with the advent of computers, it took away the the paperwork, so to speak. But it's also made it much more complex. It's easy to start subsidiaries and related companies and brother or sister corporations and off-book entries. All of those things make it more complicated then to figure out what is the true picture of what's going on here. And I think that's what forensic accounting gets to, that's what accounting should be doing is, is it, you know, what is the true picture of the financial financial situation of the company at this point in time? Bruce, I don't know if you've been following some of the statements from the SEC. You know, recently now, Chief Accountant Muttner gave a speech back, I believe in October, talking about the role of audits in fraud detection. And the basic premise here, and I'll paraphrase what's a, a multi, multi-paid speech, is that, you know, fraud is occurring and audits are being completed. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but obviously a goal might not be getting met here. If we continue to have corporate scandals around on inappropriate accounting, when that that firm has been audited and, and that opinion signed off on. Do you have an opinion on, on maybe a response to his statements or where you see audits falling into the fraud detection spectrum? Well, I think they should move closer to it, but I think there has to be an understanding with the public what the audit really is. You know, when I started auditing early in, in my career, the, the F word, if you will, wasn't even used, the fraud word. We didn't talk mm-hmm. about it. And then it went from that to financial statement audits weren't designed to detect fraud. So if fraud occurs, don't blame us, the That's auditors. Right. Then it went to SAS 99 and the consideration of fraud and, and how, to, how do you plan the audit? I do think two things. One is 
today's auditors are better trained than they were in the past, but they're still focused on the numbers. And a lot of times when I come in and investigate fraud after there's been a clean opinion and we'll look at what's going on, the auditors that were auditing it didn't have an understanding of the business operations around that particular set of entries or that particular business. And so, you know, I, I hate to say they were ticking and tying and following an audit program, but that's what they were mm -hmm. doing. And so I think if we're going to get to the point where auditors are more of the financial police and the, and the public buys into that, then the auditors are going to have to be trained more specifically, have a heightened awareness of fraud and take the responsibility and not hide from it. You know, when you read the audit opinion letters, I mean, there's all kinds of caveats in there from the standard audit opinion letter. Mm -hmm. If we really want to get away from that, we need to change that letter. And I know there's liability and, and limitations of liability, all of that that comes into play. But at the end of the day, it's interesting when you talk to people in the public sector, they believe that if there's a clean audit opinion, there's no fraud. And when I talk to them and say, well, you know, audits aren't designed really to detect fraud. They're not a forensic, they're not a fraud examination. The, the response is, first, it's like deer in headlights. Yeah. And then they'll say to me, I didn't know that. I thought if it's a clean opinion, there's no fraud. So I think that's a, a job of the accounting profession and the legal profession and the SEC to educate the public on where do we want to take audits? Where, where do we, what, what do we want that tool to be used for? And what do we want people to rely on it and how? I, th I think that's the future of where we need to head. Awesome. That's well, good to hear. You know, a lot of what we've talked about on the podcast, Kurt, over the past two and a half years is really, you know, where can we help support, you know, some of the things the market either believes or, or yeah. maybe should should understand yep. about that. So, and and that, Bruce, always brings me back to one of my favorite questions that, that we get to ask in our world. And it has put a deer in the headlights face on many candidates that I've interviewed over the years is how do you define forensic accounting? You know, there's a lot of different ways to think about it, but Bruce, in your mind, you've been doing it for so long. Where where do you put the the boundaries around what a forensic accounting engagement is and what might not be one, or or how we how we would look to see that? So I typically define forensic accounting as the the body of knowledge around financial accounting, coupled with investigative skills and presentation skills, and it's usually presenting to some sort of tribunal, a court, an arbitration panel. It may be a public hearing. It may be as simple as a meeting with regulators, right? And it's those skill sets combined of understanding the, the financial accounting that you're dealing with, how to present it properly so people understand it, and how to be able to investigate when you're doing an investigation, how to properly gather the information, make sure the information is, is solid and cooperates what you're trying to do, and then presenting that in, in a way people understand. Mm -hmm. A lot of people get confused and think that forensic accounting is a fraud examination or a fraud investigation. Fraud investigations are just one subset component of forensic accounting. So I'll give you an example. I was hired by a client. It was a uh, publicly traded bank. They were in trouble with the FDIC. They were going to likely be shut down or they were th the FDIC was threatening to shut them down. They were threatening with a, a large monetary fine as well. And there were lawyers all around. I mean, more lawyers than the room could handle. And, I, and, and these were top you know, white-collar law firms, as you can imagine. And so we met with the FDIC in New York. And I, I asked the lawyers before we went in, I said, can I please, once you make the introductions, can I please run the meeting? And of course, there was silence among <laughs> lawyers, an accountant asking lawyers, can I run the meeting? They're with regulators. And the head lawyer said, sure, what do you want to do? And I explained what, what, I want, what I wanted to accomplish. And he said, okay, we'll let you run with it. And we're there as guideposts and, and bumpers if you need us. 
The problem was the, the bank had been giving information to the FDIC in tranches of information. And every time a new tranche of information was provided, the numbers changed. And of course, credibility was eroded. And the FDIC thought there was fraud going on. In about 20 minutes, I was able to get the attention of the FDIC. Their lawyer sat silent as well. So I was dealing with the business people you know, at the FDIC. And, and we reached common ground on what they wanted. What did they need? And I promised what I was going to get them. And, I, and I, I fulfilled that promise three weeks later. And they came back and said, wow, the data makes sense now. And so now I had established credibility. And we ended up favorably settling that. The bank survived and everybody was happy at the end of the day. But that was forensic accounting. There wasn't a fraud examination. It was about taking the data. Some was financial. Some of the data was financial. Some was not financial data. Being able to package it and present it to the regulators so they understood it, so they trusted me, and so they could fulfill their duties and obligations as regulators, and so the bank could survive. And I think that is the, kind of the art of forensic accounting in, in the sense of making it you know, so the client can survive those kind of situations. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, and Kurt would love to hear your opinion on all the lawyers being silenced for 20 minutes and the problems getting resolved. Said a word. I mean, you've, you've done it again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, but it's really, you know, a lot of times I say it's answering a question, right? And it doesn't have to be a question of fraud or theft. It can be, we don't understand why last week you told us it's 100 and this week you told us it's 120. That doesn't seem like you made 20 in the last week, right? How do we get to the answer to that question, which it sounds like, you know, happened in that case with the FDIC pretty quickly. It did. And I think part of it is today's accountants, whether you're a forensic accountant or otherwise, you need to understand how the data is stored, how the data is accumulated and what the data means. Right. Data is data. If you don't understand it, it's just mm -hmm. numbers or, or, or otherwise. And so I think that's where today's college programs with accountants need to do a better job. I lecture you know, at the university level and I'm, I'm in and out of different universities. Unfortunately, they're still focused on debits and credits. And they'll have one small class on data analytics. Well, one small class is really hard to, to get a grasp on data analytics. Not only that, you go into different companies. When I go into a, a major conglomerate, I need to understand their, their, their enterprise reporting systems very quickly, right? And if they have subsidiaries in different countries, what are the different systems? How do they interface? How, how does that information get consolidated? That becomes more of an IT type perspective, but I as a forensic accountant need to know how to do that now. So I think today's accountants need those skill sets and the colleges need to start doing a better job of teaching that. Then we can get to the point of answering those questions of what does the data mean? What's happening here? Once you know how the data should look, then if you're investigating a fraud, you can say, well, I think it should look this way and it doesn't look that way. There's a problem. Now let's let's go down that hallway and open the doors and see what's behind the doors. Yeah, I mean, and as a lawyer, look, that's why we bring folks like you in, because sometimes those are the data points that we don't understand or we don't have the expertise to kind of put those dots together. And sometimes, I mean, Chris, you and I have talked about this. I very much think about my job as telling a story, creating a narrative. What is the thing that is going to present my client's case in the best light? Truthful, but the best light. And sometimes I need a Bruce to tell that story. I, I can't do it. So, I mean, kudos to the lawyers for letting you jump in and sort of take the reins on that. But that's how it should be sometimes. And, we, you know, we, we just need that expertise. Well, and Kurt, it's, it's a great point. I work very closely with a lot of lawyers and I've worked with, you know, the best firms in, in the world. It's, it's been a privilege to work with so many lawyers like that. And it is a team effort. 
you have your area of expertise. I have my area yeah. of expertise. And once there's that mutual respect, then we can figure out how do we dance together so the dance comes off, you know, it looks good. And when I testify in court, a lot of it is how am I communicating that information as an expert to the jury or, or even to the judge? And how, how, is, how are the lawyers asking the question? How are they eliciting the information from me on direct to get out the points, the salient points that they want to put in front of the, the jury? And then how do I respond? And it even goes to practicing a lot before we get into court. You know, there are new lawyers that I work with that I haven't worked with before. I want to know what their cadence is. I want to know how they, you know, how they'll approach that question. Mm-hmm. Is it a rhetorical type question, but not really? And so we'll practice. And then body language from both the, the lawyer at the, at the stand, at the, at the lectern, my body language, am I facing the judge? Am I facing the jury? I had a case a couple of years ago and I was being cross-examined. And in the middle of cross-examination, the lawyer stopped and said, Mr. Dubinsky, I have a question for you. I said, oh, okay. He said, why are you looking at the jury when you answer my questions? Why aren't you looking at me? And I paused and I said, well, my mother told me when I was young, when I'm addressing somebody and, and, and I'm answering to look at them and I'm trying to educate the jury. You're asking a question, but my job here is to assist the jury to get to the truth of the matter. So I thought it was respectful to look right at the jury when I'm answering them. And of course, there was silence. I mean, there was egg on his face <laughs> yeah. at that point when he moved on. But you know, it's, it's about the presentation skills. And that, Chris, I come back to when I said forensic yeah. accounting, part of it is being able to present both on paper and in live presentation, being able to present, that's a, an important skill set for forensic accountants. Yeah. I mean, look, I think you've done an incredible job of explaining not only the importance of the forensic accountant, but what it is exactly they do. And I really appreciate the stories, right? It kind of, it, it brings it out. I mean, you can imagine how important this function or this role was in in the Madoff scandal, right? And if you've seen the documentary, it it's obvious to all. But I wonder if if you could highlight a couple of other cases, you know, sort of blockbuster cases where you think the role of the forensic accountant was front and center and really made a difference in the outcome of those matters. Well, recently I worked, I do a lot of work for the Department of Justice and, and the IRS General Counsel's Office, but this was a case for the Department of Justice. It's been been in the papers. It was at that point the largest criminal tax fraud, individual criminal tax fraud case in the history of the country. The individual was charged with more tax fraud. Basically, it was a private equity guy, set up a very complex, elaborate offshore network of entities, put his carried interest in those entities, which is a question, how do you take your carried interest from private equity and just shove it in an offshore entity? But nonetheless, you know, there, there were lawyers that assisted him to do that. And he was charged. Uh, there was a grand jury. They went through and, and this individual was charged. And through that investigation, I spent about four years investigating that, learned a lot myself about the international kind of the international setting of getting documents, MLAT agreements and dealing with different countries and getting evidence and getting people in to testify. That individual, because I believe because of my work in the Department of Justice's work, ended up entering into a non-prosecution agreement before trial. The individual had hired the top. I mean, I think there were six white-collar law firms that this individual hired. He's worth billions of dollars, so he can go out and hire the best law firms. And I put out a very lengthy report that in a criminal case, you don't need to have a lengthy expert report. It's called a Rule 16 report. But I put out a pretty lengthy, detailed report. And the other side was provided with that. 
And they saw the roadmap of what was going to be presented at trial and the detail of emails that I had put in the report. And, you know, it was, this was all going to, did the individual control the offshore entity? And if so, as a U.S. taxpayer, you have to pay tax on, on your worldwide income. And we had a plethora of evidence. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I think working on that and laying that report out, and, and the non-process agreement went all the way up to the attorney general. This was under when President Trump was in office. Working with that caliber of people, working with the caliber of lawyers on the other side, what I was going to be up against, just was a phenomenally interesting case. You know, I worked on part of the Enron case. I worked on when the SEC charged two of the Enron lawyers in the general counsel's office with fraud. They were charged with civil fraud at that point, and it dealt with the offshore off-book entries. And I came in and was working with, again, very good white-collar lawyers, but helped them understand the accounting entries and what, what did it mean, you know, putting entries on a, on a you know, off-balance sheet basis? What did that mean? And from an intent standpoint to prove, I mean, this was a civil case, so they really didn't need to go to the criminal intent, but they needed some, some wherewithal there. What did they need? And we ended up successfully entering into an agreement with the SEC that kept the, those two individuals they were able to practice law in the future. Let's put it that way. Their law licenses were, were suspended for a period of time, but they could practice later on. Those kind of cases, you, you learn a lot dealing with the lawyers. You learn a lot dealing with clients. And it's again, it's every case is different. That's what I love about forensic accounting. Every single case is different. Not every every case comes out with end results. You know, I had a we were defending a lawyer that was charged with insider trading up in the Eastern District in New York in federal court. You know, at the end of the day, the jury came back and convicted the guy. And there were there was some bad facts that we had to contend with. My testimony was cabined in by the judge, so I could only testify in certain areas. And we thought that some more testimony that we were going to proffer would have been helpful to the jury, but the judge decided otherwise, which is in the purview of the judge. But, you know, we do our best. And my job is not to win a case. My job is to be an advocate for my opinion. And be able to, to put out an opinion, an independent, unbiased opinion that I can stand behind and back up. And then, then I can advocate for that. Unlike the lawyers who advocate for the client, that's their job. And a lot of people don't understand that too in, in, in the role of an expert. They feel like they have to win the case for the client. They have to win the case for the lawyers. That's not my job. And I tell lawyers that up front. That's not my job. I mean, I certainly want to be on the winning side. But my job is to give you a solid opinion that you as the lawyers can maneuver with and figure out what you want to do with and how to, how to deploy that opinion. I love it, Bruce. You know, Kurt, you talked about burying the lead up front. Let's address the $60 billion elephant in the room and get on to, <laughs> to sharing some of our, our experience, Bruce, that we shared at Duff and Phelps, you know, and, and I know you've worked on consistently over the past few years about the Madoff scandal. I just started as a, as a young senior associate with Duff and Phelps in the summer of 2011. And I'll never forget you coming around the corner and, and stopping by my cube and asking what my schedule looked like for the rest of the year, because we, quote, might win a large case in New York soon. So, Bruce, right. share some of the, the background on, on how that matter developed and then, you know, the early stages of, of that case and your role as the expert there as it related to the trustee. Sure. So, fascinating. I think it's a fascinating story of how I got this case. I had been going back and forth to New York. I had sold my company to Duff and Phelps in 2008, the end of, I guess it was April 2008. And by the end of 2008, I was spending a lot of time in New York City, back and forth on the Amtrak train, the Acela train between Washington and New York. So one afternoon, about five o'clock, I board the five, five o'clock Acela leaving Penn Station. 
and the first class car is pretty full and there's one empty seat. And a gentleman was sitting there and I said, do you mind if I sit across from you? He said, oh no, go ahead. So I did. And I'm doing my work. He's doing some work. He's reading the Wall Street Journal. We pull into Philly and I noticed that he'd been working on some legal briefs. So being a forensic accountant, my eyes are open and I'm kind of paying attention. And so now I know the guy's a lawyer. And I also see the, the cap case caption is in a bankruptcy court. So I'm assuming he's a bankruptcy lawyer. So we strike up a conversation. And sure enough, he, he was a bankruptcy lawyer. And we have a nice conversation from Philly to DC. And it turns out he was running the DC office of the law firm that was handling the, the Madoff case, Baker Hostetler. The gentleman's name was Don Workman, great, great individual. And so we struck up a, a relationship after that. We went to breakfast a couple of times, lunch. He invited me to a ball game. We, we became friends. I got wind that the lawyers on the Madoff case, the trustee, Irving Picard and Baker Hostetler, needed a testifying expert for the case. And on a Monday morning at literally 7.30, I placed a call into Don Workman at his office. Don was a former Marine, and he practiced law like a Marine. He was in there constantly. He was in, I knew he'd be in at 7.30 in the morning. And I said, hey, Don, I got wind that your firm's looking for a testifier. Would you mind connecting me with your New York colleagues? I'm not sure who to talk to. He said, Bruce, I'd love to do it. And, and he did. Nine o'clock, I get a call from New York. This is a lawyer from Baker Hostetler calling me from New York and said, we'd like to interview you. We've got your resume. We think you'd be great. When can you be up here? And I said, well, I can be on a 10 o'clock train and up there by one o'clock. Does that work? And they said, well, how about tomorrow morning instead? And I went up and interviewed and ended up getting retained. And you know, I tell that story a lot in, when I lecture at college or to, to young associates and firms about you never know who you're going to meet, where you're going to meet someone, and what it's going to lead to. So treat everybody you meet as a potential contact. I built up a relationship. You know, I always tell people collecting business cards is not a relationship. Collecting Contacts on LinkedIn is not a relationship. That's not how you're going to get business. You have to build a relationship. And in my line of work, being an expert, they have to trust me. And the only way somebody can trust me is if they know me. Once they know me, then I can build that level of trust. And then they will either refer me to a colleague or hire me. So that's, that's the story on how I got hired. And literally a decade later, I'm still working on Madoff cases, believe it or not. It's crazy. So these cases go on. There's a case in Israel that's going on. There's some other cases that I'm finishing up. So, so the beat goes on in that regard. Bruce, I want to I want to give you credit, and maybe to all of our listeners, let let them know if if you have had to listen to me talk to you on the Acela in the past ten years, it's Bruce's fault for telling me that story. It's just sitting down to <laughs> random people and trying to catch up. But yeah, on the the matter itself, Bruce, right? I think you know this is an interesting set of circumstances beyond the size and the scope. Here is you've got a defendant or or, or a bad actor here who admitted to. The issues to a degree, right? We'll all remember the the arrest right. video of him getting shoved down the street in December of 2008. But talk to us a little bit about your role as an expert as it relates to maybe some of the admitted conduct and maybe some of the conduct that wasn't admitted at the time. Sure. So when when Bernie Madoff went in and 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 confessed, he confessed to a fraud. He did not confess to a Ponzi, which is interesting. You know, Ponzi is a type of of financial fraud. A lot of people equate fraud and Ponzi, but they're, they're two different things. He pled guilty in his plea allocution to securities frauds and other financial fraud, cooking the books. He never admitted to a Ponzi. 
Part of the bankruptcy case, there is a presumption if there's a Ponzi that occurred, there's certain presumptions on what you can do to go as a trustee to get back money from people that took too much money out or got money in the, in the, during the Ponzi. So my role was to prove that it was a Ponzi, among other things, and there, there was fraud to prove insolvency and, and, and different things. And so we had to go about it based on the admitted conduct of what Bernie Madoff admitted. There were also five others, the five insiders that pled not guilty. If you recall, there were five kind of in, in, the, in the movie Madoff, the one that just came out on, on Netflix. There were five insiders that helped him perpetrate this fraud. I mean, to this day, they will all say that they didn't know it was a Ponzi, but nonetheless, they pleaded not guilty. I ended up testifying in that criminal case for the government, and they were all found guilty of financial fraud and, and served time. Um, but nonetheless, we had to go about kind of reconstructing a set of books and computer systems to be able to prove that no trading occurred. Because a Ponzi is, I take your money, Chris, and I promise you a return, and then I take Kurt's money, promise him a return. And when it's time to pay your return, I'm paying your return with Kurt's money. I may go back to Kurt and ask for more money because I got to pay you money, or I may get a third investor or a fourth investor. And so there's no real trading going on or no real business going on. It's kind of a hollow vacuum of just money coming in and money going out. So the challenge was we had tons of documents that showed on their face that it looked like trades occurred, right? We, our job was then to go in and prove, well, all this paperwork was just, you know, printed paperwork and it was all false. And how, why was it false? And how could I prove that? So it's kind of like proving a, a negative, mm -hmm. if you will. That was a real challenge. We had to use different, different methods, different te technologies. We went and, and secured an identical computer system to the one Madoff had, because when the, when, when the FBI went into the Madoff offices, they seized everything. So they had the computers. I couldn't go to the FBI. I did tour the FBI and dealt with them, but they maintained possession of those computers till later on. In doing our initial work, I needed to get into the computer system. So I found one remaining AS400 computer system in the United States. It was out of Atlanta. Had it shipped up to, to New York. We stripped it down, reformatted the drive, started from scratch, restored backup tapes. And now I had a working library of Madoff programs. And then I could see how the computer programmers cooked the programs. I mean, basically, it was a big, giant printing press is what they, what they made, what they did. But it was very unique in people said, well, Madoff already admitted there was a fraud. Why do we need to do all this other work? Well, in the bankruptcy court, there are certain things you need to do to be able to claw back money, as Picard did. Picard was the, the trustee. And that required proving insolvency, proving a Ponzi, uh, and many other things. So... There was a lot involved. We had a team of over 100 people at one point. We were all working up in New York. I remember you were there working seven days yeah. a week straight. It was, it was a fun time, but it was also a very challenging time. There were a lot of, there were a lot of issues and, and the things we needed to deal with along the way. You know, it's interesting, Bruce, you mentioned that you're still doing some work on this. And so I'd, I'd love to hear how your role has evolved over you know, 10 plus years since maybe you and Chris were hunkered down in, you know, an office building in New York. Well, Kurt, as they say, the wheels of justice do not spin very quickly. <laughs> and there are a lot of cases still in the court system. You know, the Supreme Court had issued a ruling on, on the Madoff case dealing with the, the feeder funds that were abroad and whether the, the U.S. had jurisdiction. 
So those got kicked back down. And I think 80 new cases were filed by the trustee last year, I believe it was. You know, largely my role is just testifying now as an expert, cases that, that finally make their way through the process and are being tried. If they can't be settled out, they still require everybody's entitled to their own defense in, in a case. And so believe it or not, I, I have to go into court and testify. Yes, it was a Ponzi. Here's how it was perpetrated. And you can try to cross-examine me on the Ponzi if you want and, and anything else I've testified in the you know, numerous other cases. But that's the way the justice system works. Everybody gets their day in yeah. court. So I'm still dealing with those cases. I think those are going to come to an end. One of the, the last cases I testified in, you know, it's a classic example of if you don't know the answer to a question on cross-examination, don't ask it. Nonetheless, the lawyer asked me a question about a certain document, and, and she said, Mr. Dubinsky, now you can't point to a single document that backs up your, your, your claim in this one regard. It was a very specific issue. And I said, no, I disagree with you. And I paused. And she took the bait and said, what do you mean? What document are you talking about? And I proceeded to say there was a document between J.P. Morgan Chase and the federal government that settled in a non It actually was a deferred prosecution agreement where the bank admitted to certain things about the Madoff Ponzi scheme. And she just was stopped dead in her tracks. And it was, it was the, the ultimate issue that the, the jury needed to decide. She asked the question. Then she objected as I continued to testify about it. And the judge said, well, you opened the door. You asked the question. He can tell the jury what he found. And of course, the jury came back and found against her client because of that issue. So, you know, a lot of it is, and that document, by the way, I hadn't found until much later in the case. Hmm. And I was going through just preparing and I just happened to stumble across something and said, let me go look here. And, you know, it's, you never know what's behind door number one, two or three, and you got to open the doors and see. But those cases continue. They will wind down shortly, though. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty confident of that. Interesting. Yeah, Bruce, one of my favorite stories from working together is the Stup program that, that again, another kind of document <laughs> that you stumbled upon that I, you know, I recall made up a significant portion of the report because it talked about the motivation and the timing of some of the printing press issues that, that you talked about prior. Give us a little more color on that specific issue and, and how that played into your, your opinion. Well, it, it, it was interesting. It was some documents that I found that were called, they actually were called shupt. The Yiddish word is shtup, which means to push, to make a little harder. There's some other connotations out there, but I'll leave that off this podcast. And basically what was happening was at the end of December, Madoff had certain clients that were more important to him than others that he had promised certain returns to. And, and in this time period, some of the returns were 18, 19, 20%. And because you're putting fake trades in during the year using options, you're not really sure what the calibration at the end of the year is going to be of where does that, if I promise Dubinsky 20%, am I at 17 or am I already over at 24? So let's say I was at 17. Now I need to give Dubinsky another 3% to get him to the finish line of where I promised. So I'm going to stoop him a little bit, give him a little bit more. And there, were, there was a computer routine. I mean, it wasn't much of a routine. It basically said, let's go make up some option trades on S&P calls and puts and put it in the computer program. And they had a little computer program that would, would calibrate if I needed 3% or 4% what the spread on the option should be. And then I just typed it in and it made it look like a trade. It would print, print the trade tickets. 
And then someone would key punch those trade tickets into Dubinsky's account. And Viola, I've got the 20% return. So what was funny was Frank Di Pascali, obviously of Italian descent, Di Pascali, not of Jewish descent, not of Yiddish, was using the Yiddish term, but he didn't know how to spell it. <laughs> so he spelled it wrong on these, these you know, sheets internally called Shukt. And when I looked at it, I'm like, Shukt, Shukt, what is that? And so that's, that's where we found out about how it was, it was supposed to be Shukt. But it was a big part of the report because it goes to the efforts that the people inside Madoff went to to perpetrate the fraud. Mm-hmm. And that goes to knowledge, scienter, everything if, you know, during the criminal trial. That was all played in front of a jury in, in the Southern District of New York. And ultimately, the, all five of those people got convicted, the Madoff Five. The two programmers and, and three other insiders got convicted and went to federal prison. That, to me, was one of the clearest examples, not that there weren't dozens of others. But November 30, the statement said, promised return 20 percent, actual return year to date 17 percent. You know, magic computer program December then led to, you know, promised return of 20 percent on the December 31 statement and an actual return 20.02 percent. And that happened in dozens of accounts year over year. For, for running that program. I thought it was a pretty strong, strong illustration. Can you imagine going to the horse races and getting the, the daily horse sheet after they won, mm-hmm. you know, the daily, the, it reports all the results. And now just rewinding a day as yeah. if, you know, the time machine takes you back to the horse race yesterday. I mean, you're picking winners, baby. Yeah, that's, that's Back to the Future too, <laughs> right? Wasn't that? That? That's yeah, how exactly. Billy got rich in Back to the Future. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, Bruce, one of the other things we want to talk about today besides the case itself is the recent Netflix documentary. I personally, and and it's not just Kurt texting me, but I have gotten dozens of calls and texts from folks asking about this, you know, almost as many as I got when Ben Affleck played that very famous accountant from a few years ago on the silver screen. But I believe also this documentary (laughs) topped Netflix's most watched shows the weekend it released. So not only something that relates to what we care about here on the Insecurities Podcast, but it's touching that vein with the general public. This also is, is obviously a well-covered area. You know, we've seen dozens of books and movies over the past 10, 12 years about uh, the Madoff, about the Madoff matter. You know, Harry Markopoulos came out, you know, early on and and created a movie about, a documentary about that called Chasing Madoff. We saw more of a drama version of of the case presented based on Diana Enriquez's book, Wizard of Lies, with with the famous Robert De Niro playing, playing Bernie Madoff in that. So talk to us a little bit about how this documentary, you know, is a little different or, or maybe covering some areas that some of the previous iterations haven't. Yeah. So look, I was a little skeptical, too, when Netflix contacted me and said, we're going to do a movie, a, doc, a docu-series. I said, wow, there's been a lot of movies out already. What's going to make this different? Uh, you know, if you back up a little bit, Jim Campbell wrote a book, made off, made off and I think it was called Made Off Talks, uh, if I got the, the title right. And that book was then the subject of the docu-series on, on Netflix. Joe Berlinger is a, you know Academy Award-winning, Emmy-nominated producer, brilliant guy. He's done a lot of crime docu-series. They came to me and said, they're going to do a, a docu-series. They want to do it differently. It wasn't so much focused on the drama of Bernie and, and the drama that, that he created for everybody, but they wanted to tell a story from the very beginning of who this man was and how the fraud and Ponzi was perpetrated and who was involved. And they were not going to glamorize it. They wanted it really to be almost like a true crime docu-series. And so I said, okay. And for about three months prior to the shooting, when they shot the production in March of 2022, 
they were, they were talking to me and they would interview me and ask questions. I had never been involved in, in something like this before. And what was interesting to me is the level of detail that they were seeking. And there's a lot of public information out about the case. My reports have been public, so I pointed them to the reports. I wasn't able to discuss anything that was specific to a certain case that wasn't already public because of confidentiality issues. And I told them that, and they were fine. But they were, they were very diligent in fact-checking every single thing they could. And if I told them something, anecdotally, they would say, well, how can we fact-check that? And I would say, well, you could go to the court's website here. You can go to the bankruptcy trustee's website here. So they spent a lot of time trying to do that. Fast forward after three months, they call up and say, okay, can you come to New York? We've got a production facility out in New Jersey. We'll pick you up and, and, and bring you out there. We want to shoot. And so they did. And I agreed to go up there. And we shot for about six and a half hours on camera. For me, it was very exciting. I had never been on, on that kind of camera. I've been on newscasts before, and I've had a cable TV show early on in my career, but nothing on the, the big screen, so to speak. I mean, you're looking at cameras worth you know millions of dollars staring at you, coming at you from different angles, and smoke machines making it look smoky behind you. But Joe Berlinger, the, the producer, did a fantastic job of telling the story to make it interesting to people and telling enough of the details of the story to keep people's interest through the four-part series. One of my concerns was, is it going to be too long and dragged out because people will lose interest? You know, I've worked on it for over a decade. There are a lot of details I know that other people don't, but it's nuanced and it wouldn't be that, that thing to people. So I think that the four-part series, you know, I probably got cut down of six and a half hours of camera time to maybe 30 minutes in the four series. It was fun. I have received emails from all around the world, some very flattering emails, some very intriguing emails about, hey, I'm onto a Ponzi scheme. I need your help. Hey, I'm onto a fraud. I need your help. Every single day I'm getting, before the, this podcast today, I got an email. Somebody you know, said, I, I saw you on the Netflix. I, I need you. My grandfather's involved in a major fraud and he needs somebody to help investigate it. So, you know, we'll see if some of those pan out. I'm, I'm supposed to be semi-retired at this point, enjoying life in South <laughs> Florida, playing golf and boating and in between working, but we'll see how that pans out. But a fascinating process. And like you said, it's been trending as a top program on Netflix, which I think is a testament to the entire production team. You know, even the makeup artist, she made me look much better than I normally look, you know, with, with makeup and hair. So I really appreciated the work she did on me in that regard. That's, well, Bruce, I know this popular Netflix docuseries is getting you a lot of attention, but just wait until your episode of Insecurities is released. I'm sure that the maybe hundreds of listeners will be out there hoping to, to bring yeah. you in on the same cases. Your boating days will be over. <laughs> That's right. For sure. You'll be you too go. busy. <laughs> interesting you talk a little bit about the production team and some of the decisions that they have to make and your concerns early on about how this was going to be different or maybe tell the story a little bit differently or cast it in a different light. So I guess I'm wondering now that you've you've gone through the process, you've seen the final series, I wonder if there are things that you think they did you know, really well or differently or highlighted pieces of the case that maybe the public wasn't aware of before and just kind of brought them into the to the public's attention. Well, the feedback that I've received from people is they didn't realize that there was no trading. That was the biggest thing. People said, well, I knew it was a Ponzi. I, maybe it was a fraud. I didn't realize that there were no securities that were ever traded and that it went on for 40 years. 
And so I think Joe did a great job in portraying that, in how that, that occurred. You know, there were, there were two sides to the Madoff house. One was the, the market making and prop trading business. And those actually had trades. Yeah. And so that was a real business in that sense, although there was fraud that permeated that business too. And so I thought he did a good job of differentiating that quickly and not confusing the viewers and laying out like this was just a sweatshop of, you know, creating fake trades and keeping people at bay. And I think also he told a good story of how some of the key inside investors to Madoff really kind of, whether they controlled Madoff, quote unquote, or it was a mutual existence that they, you know, that they had between some of the, the top investors and, and Bernie, I think that was a, a, an important part of the story that he got across as well. I don't think he really missed anything. I, you know, again, there are things that I thought were interesting, but if you put them in there, where does it drag the story? Mm-hmm. You know, do, do you get off the main path and you start going down a side path and, and, and really dilute a little bit? So I think, I think he did a great job. And like I said, the feedback has been been amazing that that I've heard from people, not not just on the cinematography that he did and some of the, the actors, just the way he went about telling the story, I, I, I thought was was really yeah. good. I like too, Bruce, you talk about that printing press. I remember when we went over to, to Long Island City to the warehouse where there were shelves upon shelves of printed statements that were kept for record keeping purposes, right? If there was ever a question asked. But the 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 story I remember is that they were lined up by date, and after seven years and one day, at the end of that last row of, of, of boxes was an incinerator, and they would take the statements from seven right. years and one day ago and chuck them in the incinerator and shift everything down. It was such an interesting kind of take on on seeing kind of the nuts and bolts of what happened with this with this scheme, you know, come to life in, in a warehouse, you know, in New York City. Look, when I went into the, the warehouse that the FBI had set up when they seized everything, there were giant shredding machines. Not only were there giant shredding machines, there were giant bags of shredded material. Like, why would you keep bags of shredded material at that point? Maybe they just didn't throw them in the trash can, you know, in the dumpster at that point. But yeah, when you see that, you know, I remember walking through the the Madoff offices. And again, this is kind of, you talk about forensic accounting or investigative. My eyes went to a case of, there were two boxes, pretty good sized boxes, and it had letterhead of the CPA firm that was supposedly auditing Bernie Madoff. Now, why in the heck would the auditor have letterhead and envelopes at your client's office? Not one or two. I'm talking thousands. And come to find out, we knew because I found the, the fake audit opinions and fake audit letters and confirmation letters on the Madoff computers that were prepared by Madoff personnel using the auditor's letterhead. So when someone would want to confirm something, one of Bernie's people would just type it up and say, oh, yeah, my accountant confirmed it. And we have his, you know, and no one would be the smarter, Mm -hmm. right? But it was (laughs) noticing that that led me to say, let's start searching for that name and the letterhead and see what we found. And we found Word documents with metadata. And I could tell who created them, the date and time that the person at Madoff, and that person ended up taking a plea bargain creating fake documents. So that goes back to earlier in the podcast. I said, today's accountants, if you're going to investigate things, you need to be a true Sherlock Holmes type detective. You have to know IT. You have to know data. You have to know how a set of books work. You have to know legally how things should be set up, different entities. All of that body of knowledge needs to come together and, and be put together to be able to effectively investigate a situation. 
you know, Bruce, we could obviously talk for at least six and a half hours on tape about the Madoff documentary as, as you did with them. <laughs> but I'm interested, too, you know, you've talked a little bit about how you're semi-retired now and you've had a, a long career in the accounting field. You know, you've sat on, on boards and helped lead some of the premier organizations in our field, you know, being a region with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, as well as half a dozen others. I'm interested in your take and maybe some insight for our listeners. What do you think is next for forensic accounting services and, and fraud investigations? Will it be more of the same or, or maybe do we need to be better equipped for some of those things you've talked about? Well, one of the things that gives me great concern is the last statistic I heard about kids going into accounting at universities in the United States is less than one half of 1% of all students enrolling. I mean, that's a staggeringly low number. That concerns me. Unfortunately, the accounting profession, when they went to the five-year degree, five-year certification years ago, I think shot themselves in the foot. Accounting is not sexy. People don't think of it as a sexy career. They want to go into IT. They'll go into finance. They'll go into marketing, other things. We need to do a better job in academia of attracting students and saying, look, it's not just ticking and tying numbers and, and putting a check mark next to a number. You're really going to be a valued resource in a business entity whether you work internally or externally. And if you go the forensic accounting route, yeah, you can marry some law enforcement classes, criminology, psychology, all of that together. I worked with the University of Maryland trying to get a multidisciplinary program put together. The politics inside a university to get these programs put together is worse than our national politics. It's, it's unbelievable. And it's a shame because really a multidisciplinary approach, if you said to kids, if you want to be a forensic accountant, and you could take some law enforcement classes so you understand mm -hmm. about evidence. And you take about criminology so you understand the mindset of a fraudster. And some psychology classes and accounting and IT and marry that. Now to a, to a prospective student, I mean, that's interesting, right? Yeah. That's got some sex appeal to it. At least it does to me. Hopefully for some other people listening, they'd, they'd <laughs> agree. But my concern is with the dwindling number of accountants and the proliferation of the amount of businesses that are being started up all the time, that's going to be a problem. And what happens now is everybody says, well, why do we need accountants? You have QuickBooks and you have enterprise systems that account for everything. And now they're talking about AI being able to account for accounting transactions. Okay, well, AI may be able to recognize an invoice and book it properly. But if the underlying substance of that invoice was fraudulent, AI can't pick that up. It'll never be able to pick that up. Maybe not. I shouldn't say never say never. And that's, <laughs> by the way, the name of my boat. And I'll tell you an anecdotal <laughs> story about that in a minute. But I think you need to get to the point where you have the knowledge to be able to investigate and teach the people how to investigate. And, and, but it, it does concern me on where the profession is going. I think there's a lot of good education from the different professional organizations. They're doing a good job. But again, this was a male-dominated industry. The diversity is lacking in the industry. We need more diversity, both you know, gender diversity and, and ethnic diversity or racial diversity. It's starting to happen. We're starting to see that, but not fast enough. So look, it, it gives me concerns down the road on, are we going to have enough financial cops to be able to police the financial community properly at the end of the day? Bruce, again, like I said, we could talk for hours and I've really enjoyed catching up with you, you know, after been a few years between we've worked together. Thank you so much for taking some time away from the grandkids and the boat to share with us here on the Insecurities Podcast. 
Chris and Kurt, it's been great to, uh, to meet you both today. Chris, catching up with you has been great and good luck to you guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Bruce Dubinsky of Dubinsky Consulting. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.